You're listening to The Littlest Things in Life. I'm your host, Nick Buer, an anatomical and clinical pathology resident here at the Mayo Clinic, bringing you a podcast on microbiology, infectious disease, and the littlest things that have changed our world and will continue to, one bug at a time. We hope to have discussions that will be both entertaining and educational, from how plagues of the past have shaped our society of today, to the microbiology and the food that we eat, to the facts and figures of living in the post-antibiotic era, and hopefully many more to come. I'm excited to welcome you to our premiere episode, just in time for Valentine's Day. Episode one, the burning sensations of love. We will, of course, be talking sexually transmitted disease, also known as STDs. There are dozens of them, viruses, bacteria, and parasites. Some present with the classic signs of burning and itching, and some can be completely asymptomatic, hidden from view. Based on what we know from the latest CDC report, released October of 2018, the number of STDs has increased for the fifth consecutive year. Joining me today, and the first ever guest on The Littlest Things of Life, is Dr. Stacy Rizza from the Department of Infectious Diseases and a professor of medicine here at the Mayo Clinic. During our conversation, we will discuss HIV and syphilis, approach these two from a clinical standpoint, and why it is important for healthcare providers and the general public to have an understanding of these sexually transmitted diseases. Dr. Rizza, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. So let's start with HIV. Okay. A viral infection. Mm-hmm. Um, according to HIV.gov, approximately 1.1 million people have it in the United States today, about one in seven not knowing they have it and needing testing, with 38 million people around the globe and 1.7 of them being children. Yes. Given those numbers, what is the natural course of HIV if left untreated, and what effects would it have on the body? So, excellent question. As you can tell from the numbers you just told me, that HIV is still very much a real problem in the world today, and it's still a global epidemic. We know that HIV infects higher-level primates, including us, homo sapiens, and once HIV gets into our body, it can do a number of things. So within the first few weeks, people can develop what they may interpret as a cold or a flu, or what we call a retroviral syndrome. So they may get fevers, they may get a sore throat, some swollen lymph nodes, they may feel tired, they may get a rash, or they may have absolutely nothing. And our body will eventually form an immune response to HIV. It's not enough to clear it as we can with influenza and some other viruses, but it's enough to get control of the virus and bring the amount of virus replicating in our bodies down to a lower level. And most people will be at that point where they feel utterly and completely fine, their immune system is kind of keeping HIV in check, so to speak, but they are infected with HIV and have absolutely no idea, talking about the numbers you mentioned, one in seven people in the United States. Right. And that can go on for a long time. For some people, it's years. For some people, it's decades. And in some very, very rare situations, it's even for the rest of somebody's life. But over time, the immune system will just conk out and lose control of the HIV And the HIV will start to replicate at much higher levels and start to kill parts of the human immune system. And when that happens, people start to become susceptible to infections and opportunistic cancers. And if left untreated, they will eventually die of those infections or those cancers. So given those numbers then, who should be tested for HIV? So according to the CDC, any adult, which they define as between the age of 13 and 64, should have at least one lifetime test. So that means the provider, the healthcare provider, doesn't have to ask a single question. 
you don't have to ask have you ever had sex you don't have to ask if you've ever had a tattoo or whether you've ever shot up drugs if you are a human being between the age of 13 to 64 you should have at least one lifetime test and that is the responsibility of healthcare providers to help make that happen right now if somebody has risk factors for hiv new sex partners they've been using drugs they were born to an hiv positive parent if they've had new tattoos, anything else that may be a risk factor, they should have testing more frequently. And how should HIV be treated? So HIV is managed with a combination of what we call antiretroviral therapies, or essentially antiviral medications that attack HIV at different points in its life cycle. We've traditionally used three of those in combination, and many times that can be combined into a single pill a day, so essentially three active drugs in one pill. So many of our patients who are taking HIV therapy take one pill a day. It's easier than treating their high blood pressure. It's easier than treating their diabetes, asthma, many of their other medications for other diseases. Guidelines are moving towards only needing two in particular situations because our newer drugs are just so much more active. But HIV should be managed by an HIV specialist. It's actually mm -hmm. fairly complicated on which drugs you choose and according to what the background is, what the resistance has been, and what the other potential side effects may be. Do people living with HIV then, when they're on therapy, and need any additional special um, kind of care? So if somebody is on HIV therapy, they should be following with their HIV physician at least twice a year. Many times it's more frequently, particularly at the beginning of their treatment. And we know now after several decades of research and following people who are doing well on HIV therapy, that HIV has effects on end organs in addition to just on the immune system. So we know if left untreated, HIV can cause bone thinning, osteoporosis and osteopenia. We know HIV can cause endovascular disease resulting in heart attacks and strokes. Mm -hmm. HIV can affect the kidney resulting in nephropathy or some renal failure. So if somebody is monitoring or caring for a person living with HIV, they need to keep all of that in mind. So we do pay attention to blood pressure and lipids and encouraging people to stop smoking and weight control, as well as monitoring bone density and taking care and monitoring the kidney and urinalysis and creatinine. So there's a number of health maintenance steps that we can continue to pursue with people living with HIV to keep our patients healthy and living a very long, healthy, normal life. Right. So if someone who's living with HIV is actually receiving the treatment and they're doing everything that they should be doing, will the disease naturally shorten their life? So if somebody starts HIV therapy early in the disease, and that's, a, again, that is our burden as healthcare providers to do the testing so we don't let somebody go with untreated HIV for a long time, that we diagnose people early and we link them to GARE and get them on therapy so that their viral load is suppressed, it's not gone, but it's suppressed, then people can live a near normal life expectancy with good health care maintenance and taking care of other issues in their health care. Right. People frequently die of other diseases with HIV if they're not having their health care attended to as opposed to HIV itself. Now, given that we're talking about sexually transmitted diseases, is it safe for a person with HIV to have unprotected sex? That's a great question. So if somebody has replicating HIV and they're not on therapy, it is not safe because they can transmit HIV to others. In addition to the fact that they can become infected with other sexually transmitted infections. In fact, we even know that people can get super infected with HIV. So if somebody is on HIV therapy and doing exceptionally well, 
but has unprotected sex with somebody who has a more resistant HIV virus, they can get super infected with that more difficult to treat virus. An additional virus. An additional virus, super infected. The bigger question and where we're leading now is something called U equals U or undetectable equals untransmittable. We have very, very good data that's been done many times, but particularly in a landmark study that was multinational, multi-center, NIH funded, that looked at thousands of couples. And we know that if you treat people for their HIV so that their viral load is undetectable, the risk of transmission to a sex partner is virtually zero. So that tells us that if your HIV viral load is undetectable, then the ability to transmit it is dramatically decreased. Right. And I always ask people to pause and just think about the societal implication of that. If we were able to detect every human on the planet that's HIV infected and get every human on the planet treated so they're undetectable, HIV would be gone in one generation. So that is a very powerful statement. Now, does that mean if one of our patients is on HIV therapy and their viral load's undetectable, we can tell them it's safe to not use a condom? That's a bigger deal. Right. And we usually spend quite a bit of time teaching our patients who are living with HIV and having that discussion with them because not using condoms has made the number of people with HIV getting syphilis go up in the last few years. Chlamydia mm -hmm. and gonorrhea has right. gone up as well as the fact that our patients are vulnerable to getting infections from others. So I don't know if I'd quite say don't use a condom. We still recommend that all of our patients who are living with HIV and who are having new sex partners use condoms. But if somebody's in a long-term monogamous relationship and one person has HIV, the other does not, and the HIV patient is completely suppressed, then they can consider not using condoms. So given that then, with those conversations, is that usually how it goes when people ask how HIV be? HIV can be prevented, or is there more to it? So there are a number of ways that we can prevent HIV transmission. Um, obviously, not engaging in the activities that transmit HIV is one way. Um, condoms are a very, very important way to prevent HIV transmission around the world. Clean needle exchanges are a very important way to prevent HIV transmission. But we have a few other tools in the toolbox, so to speak, nowadays. For people who are at risk of getting HIV infection, so either they have multiple sex partners or new sex partners, or maybe they have an HIV positive sex partner, a single one, but somebody who has HIV or whatever the reason, we can give what's called HIV PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis. Now I mentioned previously we've traditionally used three drugs and are moving towards two drugs to treat HIV in combination. PrEP is taking two anti-HIV drugs that are given together in a single pill, and the HIV-negative person takes that pill every single day, and as long as they have therapeutic levels of those two drugs in their body, it prevents them from getting or dramatically decreases their chance of getting HIV-infected should they be exposed. And PrEP has become a wonderful tool that we have many people on, and we need to do a better job of getting people who might be at risk on PrEP to keep them uninfected. There are other ways to prevent HIV transmission. Uh, we know that male circumcision dramatically decreases the risk of a man becoming infected with HIV, and that's being used as a modality in many parts of the world and encouraged everywhere. We know from other data that you know dramatically decreases other sexually transmitted infections, including HPV. So there is a strong movement that all men should be circumcised. 
And then, of course, needle exchange programs and condom distribution programs are also very important for preventing HIV infection. So then another thing that's coming now, every month or so we hear about like the new uh, technological advance that's kind of pushing us towards like the cure for HIV. Mm -hmm. So how are we doing on that? Like, is HIV curable? Great question. So there's been the expression, you only need to see one dog speak to know that dogs can speak. And so how <laughs> we, we have had what is probably now considered two, definitely one, and probably considered two people who have been cured of HIV. So the fact, and it's a functional cure. And what that means is they're not on HIV therapy, and HIV is not coming back. Does that mean that if you hunted through their entire body, you couldn't find a single bit of HIV? Probably not. In fact, you might be able to. But they're functionally cured of HIV. So I guess you could say now, yes, HIV can be cured. It's difficult. And there is a huge amount of very exciting research that's going into doing it in a more generalizable way. The people who have been cured have been done through very complicated interventions that when repeated, many others didn't work. So we can't say just doing this or just doing that will do it because we know everything that they've had done have been done in many other people and it did not work. So it's likely gonna have to be a combination of approaches and the magic bullet just hasn't quite been found yet. Right, nor we're gonna expect it to anytime soon. Yeah. For more laboratory education, including a listing of live conferences, webinars, and on-demand content, visit news.mayocliniclabs.com forward slash education. But so one of the things that comes up fairly frequently every few years is the, what's the Delta 32 mutation. Yes. Which is a mutation that, is my understanding, intrinsically confers some level of resistance against HIV infection. So it's not quite that easy. So HIV right. needs two receptors to enter a cell. It always needs CD4 receptor, and it needs a chemokine co-receptor, and that can be either CXCR4 or CCR5. And it generally starts off being a CCR5-using virus and over time switches to a CXCR4-using virus in a person's infection. So CCR5 Delta 32 mutations is a naturally occurring 32 amino acid mutation or lack in certain people so that that CCR5 receptor is produced, but it cannot be expressed on the cell. So if it's an R5 or CCR5 using virus and somebody does not have the receptor on the cell, their CD4 T cells cannot be infected with HIV they still can be infected with the other form of HIV. Right. So it's not quite as straightforward as it sounds. So even eliminating the CCR5, which is what was used for some of the cures, but has been used many times over and did not work in others, is not always going to be the approach. So we're not quite there yet. Not there yet. And some of the, there have been ways that people, a certain number of people have that genetic abnormality naturally, and they tend to progress more slowly with HIV but they're not completely immune to HIV because if they were ever exposed to the other form of the virus, they'd still be infected. Get that. There have been some tools that have used, including CRISPR and CAR T cells and a number of other ways that people have attempted to have altered CCR5 on the receptor of the CD4 cell through using some of these laboratory tools to change it so you don't have to be born with that genetic background. And none of them have worked using those tools yet, They've looked promising, meaning we can do it and not hurt people, but so far we haven't done it enough to actually make it Worthwhile. cure somebody of HIV. Right. 
So just the last couple last thoughts on HIV. One of the things I want to talk about is, you know, um, HIV is a very large global burden, as we said. Yes. As a result, there's been a lot of outreach around the world from many different organizations. Mm -hmm. In here in America in 2003, uh, President George W. Bush signed PEPFAR, yes. the Presidential Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, promising 15 billion over the first five years. Now we're entering its 16th year. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on how how well it's been doing its successes? So I think any money that goes to the global control of HIV is wonderful. I think PEPFAR has been wonderful, AMFAR, the Gates Foundation, a number of these organizations that have put in very, very large number, large amounts of money to control HIV has helped and has made a difference. The global fund for HIV, the global fund to fight HIV or AIDS, is still underfunded they estimate you're probably $7 billion short in order to achieve the goals that the world hopes to achieve by certain dates in order to slow down the HIV epidemic. So what a lot of this funding does, some of it, particularly AMFAR, has gone to research, but most of the other funding has been prov is providing infrastructure, infrastructure to get people tested, infrastructure to have HIV providing care so they can be linked to care, infrastructure to get the drugs, and infrastructure to provide condoms and clean needles and other ways to prevent new infections. So I, I applaud the presence of PEPFAR. Great. Every dollar that goes in, as well as Gates Foundation, all these other foundations that have made significant contributions to ending the HIV epidemic and controlling the HIV explosion for many, many decades. Unfortunately, we're not quite there yet, and the money's not quite there, but every dollar helps. So to shift gears here, mm -hmm. um, we're going to shift from viruses to bacteria. Okay. So one in particular with a part particularly tumultuous and discussed history. Yes. One of my favorites is syphilis. Oh, syphilis has a great history. Stigmatized from its very beginning. Yes. Every country that had it either blamed it on their neighbor or yep. a local enemy. The French called it the Spanish disease. Spanish called it the French disease. Russians blamed it on the Polish. Polish blamed it on Germany. Absolutely. Unique Brought to its, the new world through right. explorers, absolutely. Unique completely in its own right, one of the spirochetes or like spirally shaped bacteria. Let's talk syphilis. Sounds good. Syphilis has been around millennia. <laughs> so what is syphilis? Um, we said it's a bacteria. It's one of the spirochetes. It's unique. What effect does it have on the body? So syphilis is, as you mentioned, a spirochete, which is like a little corkscrew of a bacteria that infects humans, and it's transmitted sexually or congenitally. And syphilis has, as we were both alluding to, has had a storied history for many, many hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years for human beings. So here we are in 2020 with our amazing technology and self-driving cars, but we still have syphilis. Yeah. So we still haven't quite gotten control of this very simple little bacteria that has a very interesting natural history if it infects a human. So as I mentioned, it's usually transmitted through sexual transmission, and it has several stages. People can be completely asymptomatic the entire time they're infected with syphilis, or they can have symptoms. So the first symptom is usually a painless ulcer. So it's something that people may or may not notice because it's painless, and it may be in a location that they don't see it. Frequently, it's around the genitals, but it can be intraanal, it can be intraoral, it can be anywhere, and not everybody gets the ulcer. 
The ulcer usually comes a few weeks after infection and will usually go away a few weeks after its painless existence. And like I said, many people won't notice it or never have it. Then a few weeks or months later, people can get what's called secondary syphilis, which generally presents as a rash. And that can really be any kind of a rash. Frequently, it's a more systemic one that's all over the body. But something that's unique is that it is also on the palms and the bottom of the feet or the soles. And there aren't a lot of rashes other than syphilis that do that, that are actually on the palms and the bottom of the soles. And again, if left untreated, it goes away. Many times people won't notice it, and they may not even have that stage of syphilis. And if left untreated, probably anywhere from 25 to 40% of people will go on to what's called tertiary syphilis or late syphilis. And late syphilis can have all sorts of effects on our bodies. It can cause an aortitis or a dilating of the aorta, which is the major blood vessel that feeds onto our heart and cause heart failure. It can cause all sorts of neurologic problems, anything from visual problems and affecting the eye to people, quote unquote, going crazy and having one thing I want to ask about, yeah. and, and other neurologic effects. It can cause discoordination. It can cause numbness, all sorts of changes, including dementia, if left untreated. So that being said, with it having an asymptomatic or a period where it doesn't look like you have it at all, yes, who should be tested for syphilis? Has this changed from before? So for a long time, the United States has had the same recommendation for who should be tested, and that is anybody who has signs or symptoms. If anybody has an ulcer, if anybody has an undiagnosed rash or neurologic problem or other granulomas or other problems within their body, they should get a syphilis test. Otherwise, it should be people who have been exposed or at risk of syphilis. So if you've had a new sex partner, if there's somebody who is known to have syphilis and they were exposed, um, men who have sex with men are supposed to be tested once a year. People with HIV are supposed to be tested once a year unless they have other risk factors for syphilis as well. And how is syphilis treated? Actually, it's pretty easy treatment, which is the funny part of this, is it's good old penicillin, which is the original truly, penicillin. The original penicillin, which is truly the best therapy. Depending on what stage of syphilis the person has and whether it's early within the first year or late after that, or whether or not it affects the brain, will determine how much penicillin and how it's given. But penicillin is by far the treatment of choice. If people are allergic to penicillin, we desensitize them. If that doesn't work, we try again. So really, penicillin is, there are alternative therapies, but penicillin really is the tried but and the true. the original tried and true. Exactly. So if someone is treated for syphilis, can it reoccur? Like, should they be concerned for recurrence? So people can absolutely be reinfected, and that's something that many physicians will pay attention to. And if there's any question, obviously refer the patient to an infectious disease doctor who can help sort out whether this is likely a new infection, or maybe it just wasn't adequately treated the first time, and syphilis comes back. If somebody is diagnosed and treated appropriately for the stage that they have and the organ involvement that they have, then it's an excellent treatment, and usually people do very well. But if somebody's immunosuppressed, meaning they've had an organ transplant or advanced HIV or some other reason that their immune system is not as strong, then they may not respond quite as well to the treatment and after treating somebody, the infectious disease provider would do follow-up testing to make sure they were adequately treated. And what about prevention? So can syphilitic infection be prevented? So syphilis is prevented by avoiding syphilis. So essentially, <laughs> predominantly, 
if the sexual transmission, it's using condoms or barrier protection. Treating syphilis, as we mentioned before, when you treat society, that decreases the risk of others becoming infected. So identifying who has it and treating it will help prevent others from becoming infected. And for congenital syphilis, or the chance that somebody can get it from birth, we have had a universal approach in the United States as all pregnant mothers are tested for syphilis. So if they're found to be positive, they're treated immediately so they can't transmit it to the fetus. So that's one thing I want to ask about was congenital syphilis because yes. according to the CDC, it has risen, the incidence has risen or the amount of new cases has risen consecutively over the last five years. Yes. Is there anything that we should be doing in, like for increased surveillance or? So part of the problem is all of syphilis has been increasing for the right. last number of years. Um, and that's, it's been a peculiar phenomenon. So syphilis decreased for literally decades. From the 1950s to the late 1980s, the amount of syphilis in the United States went down almost every year to very, very low levels. Then in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a blip that was coincident with the HIV epidemic. And then it kind of leveled off. But since the early 2000s, the amount of syphilis has been going up in the United States, unfortunately. In fact, from 2017 to 2018, the number of diagnosed H uh, syphilis cases in the United States went up 13%. And so with that, that means that the risk is that pregnant mothers are also going up and they're able to transmit the syphilis. So if a mother gets prenatal care in the United States, she will be tested for syphilis and if positive treated, and her, her newborn baby will be monitored. But if somebody does not get prenatal care and the incidence of syphilis is going up and the mother's more likely to be infected, then unfortunately we have had an increase in congenital syphilis as well. What does that look like? So that can look differently according to the case. In many cases, it can be diagnosed within the first few weeks to months after birth. But there's some very rare situations where people have late syphilis, where actually it's not diagnosed to the child's five or six years old, and affects the same parts of the body that it does in adults. There can be eye problems, there can be brain or neurologic problems, there can be ligament or bone problems. And so it many times is hard to diagnose because if you never knew the mother was positive and the baby doesn't show symptoms or signs right away, most people would not test for syphilis. If that's the case, isn't there a vaccine? Like, can there be a vaccine for syphilis? Unfor yeah, it would be great if there were, but unfortunately there is not a vaccine that either prevents syphilis meaning a preventive vaccine or a therapeutic vaccine, which means somebody has it, you give them the vaccine and they fight the infection themselves. Neither exists for syphilis. So for syphilis, I really think the cure or the treatment for the epidemic is going to be a public health initiative. An ounce so, of prevention is exactly, worth a pound of cure. Exactly. Getting people to avoid syphilis, use preventive measures, and better screening and diagnosis and treatment. Okay. I'm glad we're highlighting... Yeah. Sexually transmitted infections. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we have had an increase in many of them, including chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis over the last few years. So right. I think public awareness is essential, encouraging people to use barrier protection until they have known their partner and go together to get HIV and syphilis testing, show each other the results. And if you're both negative in a monogamous relationship, then stop using condoms. Great advice. But we want all people to be aware, to use protection, and healthcare providers to screen. Well, thank you, Dr. Rizza. I appreciate you taking the time to come in today and discuss this with us. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Thank you to our experts for taking the time to discuss these topics with us. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this bonus series under Lab Medicine Rounds. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu and reference this podcast. I invite you to follow me along on Twitter at Dr. Buer, as well as following this podcast on Twitter at The Littlest Pod, where I'll be updating and posting along with the current episode. If you have enjoyed this special episode of The Littlest Things in Life, please subscribe and listen to Lab Medicine Rounds. Thank you.